Attention shoppers, there are a wide variety of Crossrip items available in the gift shop. Sweatshirts, smartphone covers, an exclusive t-shirt designed by Dapper Dan Shonen of IDW Comics fame, and more on the way. All proceeds go towards our servers, so this remains the only ad you hear on the show. Go to GhostbustersHQ.net slash shop to get yours today. I like that shirt, friend. Hey there, fellow conductors of the Metaphysical Examination, and welcome to the Ghostbusters Interdimensional Crossrip Podcast for the week of February 4th, 2019. This week on the show, we're going to be doing another Tobin's Audio Guide. We'll be talking about crucial elements of Ghostbusters' past, uh, which have informed their present. This week, we'll be talking about Ray Parker Jr.'s iconic Ghostbusters theme song. Where did it come from? How did it originate? Stay tuned. Still Playing With Toys presents The Ghostbusters Interdimensional Crossroad, the biggest podcast since 1909. So free. News, interviews, and commentary on everything Ghostbusters. Are you the key Here are your hosts, Troy Benjamin and Chris Stewart. You know, it's just occurred to me we really haven't had a completely successful test of this equipment. Oh, we have fun. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Crossrip. Uh, this is Troy, just by himself uh, this this time around. Uh, yes, what we're doing is we're doing another one of our Tobin's audio guides. For those of you who are not familiar, these are the um, like the Cliff's Notes uh, versions of uh, history lessons and and a guide to all of the things that we know and love within the Ghostbusters lore that uh, have made it what it is today. Uh, things that we've dis- discussed in the past: uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, the Firehouse. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about something uh, very fun and near and dear to my heart. But uh, the feedback that we have gotten on the first couple of episodes has been wonderful. I'm so glad that you guys like these episodes because especially leading up to the 35th anniversary, uh, we're, we're really going to ramp these up and do as many as we can uh, just in celebration of Ghostbusters. And uh, it does seem like uh, the announcement of uh, Jason Reitman's Ghostbusters 2020 has kind of sparked a little bit of nostalgia as well. So uh, it only makes sense to kind of go back and revisit all of the things that uh, may have been just one of those small instrumental things in creating lightning in a bottle in 1984. So, uh, yes, uh, we did do, <laughs> the last one was on the firehouse and, and I talked about how, uh, it is a character. It's an unsung character of the Ghostbusters world. Um, and a lot of people were surprised that it was not another ghost. Uh, again, with the theme of this being uh, a, a riff on Tobin's spirit guide, uh, wait, we were talking about stay puffed. Why are we talking about the firehouse? That's not a spirit. Uh, so it's, it's just, (laughs) I know everybody really wants us to do Eleanor Twitty, the gray lady and, and, uh, and things like that. But, uh, really, again, the intention behind these is to go in depth into crucial elements to Ghostbusters success. Uh, so for that reason, uh, in this particular episode, we are going to be delving into not a character in the film, not a ghost, not a location, uh, not a piece of gear, not, uh, equipment, But we will be talking about the iconic theme song that has become as recognizable as the No Ghost logo itself. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Tobin's audio guide on Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. If it's something strange in your neighborhood, who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! If it's something weird and it don't look good, who you gonna call? I ain't afraid of no ghosts. 
I ain't afraid of no ghosts. You know, some 35 years later here, we do seem to take a little bit for granted the amazing theme song uh, that has become such a staple. It's such a centerpiece to the original 1984 film, uh, to the point that it has been parodied ad nauseum uh, and, and, and even used in advertising for car commercials and uh, cola commercials and uh, anything and everything that you can apply the same logic of Ray Parker Jr.'s very catchy, who you going to call to? Uh, and then selling whatever your product may be. Um, and I think that's actually interesting. That catchphrase itself, who you going to call, uh, lives side by side with the franchise, even though those words are not spoken on screen. That appears only in Ray Parker Jr.'s, uh, well, it appears in Ghostbusters 2, but let's, we're talking 1984 here. Uh, it, it, it's never spoken in the film and everybody knows who you're going to call. In fact, to the point where a lot of our, our fellow fans that cosplay or you, you're dressed up and you're, you're with your franchise, you're at a charity event or you're in a parade. Uh, what is everybody yelling at you? Hey, who are you going to call? And that's, it's just, it's, it's synonymous with the franchise. And the story behind it is that it all happened kind of in a rush. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the theme song for Ghostbusters was one of the most difficult parts of the production. And the Ray Parker Jr. version that we now have come to know and love was quite literally a last minute addition to the film. So let's let's rewind just for a second here. Put yourself in the mindset. It is 1983. You are Ivan Reitman, the director of Ghostbusters. You and your crew are in a very cold and chilly New York City right before the holidays, uh, and you're filming a television commercial that's going to appear uh, in Dana Barrett's television. They call those it's uh, a, a playback. Uh, you're creating a, a playback source that you need to have for filming on a later date. So it's something that you have to do well in advance of whatever that filming is. This, In this case, they had to film this uh, in New York City in front of the hook and ladder number eight so that they could then play it back when they moved to Los Angeles and, and shot all of the stuff on stage 16 uh, in the Burbank studios. But the problem was that as originally scripted, the Ghostbusters had this very, um, uh, very iconic, uh, very familiar and very catchy uh, a commercial that had a catchy jingle within it. It had to have an earworm that would stick within the audience's brain and would never leave. So picture this commercial that we now, again, from the original film, this is the We're Ready to Believe You commercial. Uh, and as originally scripted, um, it had a song. And... I think the the intention behind this was that maybe that song could then kind of um, lend itself into a theme song. It could be something that played in the first 20 seconds of the film that everybody would kind of leave the theater uh, having it stuck in their head. Um, and then maybe it would lead to a, a big hit theme song, you know, to compete with things that were topping the charts like, you know, I'm All Right for Caddyshack or Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 uh, or Up Where We Belong from Officer and a Gentleman, which was one of the biggest hits uh, leading up to 1983. Um, so movie music, in particular, that title track that could play over the main or end titles was really big, big business. And I think uh, Ivan, Ivan knew that, but he also knew that he had to kind of put something in the world of Ghostbusters that would be within this, this commercial. So therein lies the problem. You have a, a company called Ghostbusters. We won't get into the fact that they didn't even know that the movie could be called Ghostbusters legally until uh, filming was well underway. So it had to either be Ghostbusters, Ghoststoppers, Ghostsmashers, one of those. Um, and then it also had to have kind of a, a hook that was a jingle. It had to 
it had to make you think of just for the taste of it, Diet Coke, like one of those kind of things uh, needed to be in your head when you left the theaters. So uh, forgive me, I did just sing the Diet Coke uh, jingle and forgive me when I try to sing this, uh, but in the production draft of the screenplay, there was an extended version of that commercial that is in the movie, and it featured an excited family that had been saved by the Ghostbusters, and at the very end of the commercial, they all turn to the camera and they sing the following. If you have a ghost, but you don't want to play host, you can't sleep at all, so who do you call? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. All right, now I want you all to sing that back to me exactly the way... No, don't do that. Please. First of all, I'm sorry that I sang. Second of all, please don't sing that back to me in the way that I did it because I'm going to be embarrassed to, to listen back to this in the first place. But as you can hear, that was not a catchy earworm, uh, except for the so who do you call, which is really funny because I think Ray Parker Jr. latches back onto that later in, in the story here. But uh, that was what was scripted. And ultimately it was decided, um, you know what? We don't have that. We don't have the title locked in. We don't have this catchy jingle. I don't have the music that may accompany this that goes to the theme song in, in the first 20 uh, or that, that 20 second uh, theme song that appears in the, in the first couple minutes of the film. Um, let's just, let's move on. So according to Don Shea's making Ghostbusters book, the television commercial, which, uh, you know, we're ready to believe you. All of that was still in the script. Um, they decided it was impossible to film because nobody could come up with that jingle. The jingle was just a conundrum that nobody could crack. Uh, and also getting the word Ghostbusters into something catchy was proving kind of impossible. Diet Coke rolls off the tongue. Um, short syllables. Ghostbusters is a bit of a mouthful. Take it from us, the podcasters of the Ghostbusters interdimensional cross rip. How many people have a tough time having that roll off the tongue? Anyway, so what they did was they they opted to film the commercial that omitted the family. It omitted the jingle. It was a little more uh, public access DIY. Uh, and and again, we've, we've seen it in the film and it's amazing. Um, but it only delayed the issue because they still wanted to have a theme song. They still had left a gap in the script and in the, in the editorial uh, that Sheldon Kahn was doing to have this big featured theme song roll you straight from the, the library ghost scare into the introduction to Dr. Peter Venkman. So they, they, they knew they still had to come back and revisit this. They still had to come up with something super catchy in that 30 second span uh, that was not only going to provide the energy to motivate you into a main title theme, but also was going to keep in people's heads uh, when they left the theater. So it, it, during production, I guess the idea was, okay, let's just buy ourselves some more time. We have another couple months here in production. Once we get into post-production, there's not a lot of time because we've got a June 1984 release date and it's already Christmas of 1983, but we can still figure something out later and we can have the music supervisors work on it and have a lot of songwriters. So production wraps and there's a very famous test screening uh, that we've all heard about that the audience went nuts because uh, the film, the film was in very rough shape. In fact, none of the boss films uh, shots were finished yet. So Ivan always tells a very famous story that when the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man first showed up, uh, there was just a card with text that said shot missing. Uh, but still the audience was rolling in the floors. They loved, they, they loved the fact that that shot was missing. They thought that was part of the joke. Um, but, but anyway, uh, the first test screening, 
they didn't have that theme song yet still. They still hadn't locked that in quite yet. And so the library ghost scare happens. Uh, there's this wonderful establishing shot of, of Columbia University with a, uh, a temp title. And there's just kind of a temp something in there. They just put, I think if memory serves me correctly, they were using a lot of uh, stripes score uh, because of Elmer Bernstein. They were using a lot of that as, as temp cues. Um, so they had kind of like a little... A fanfare crescendo there, but it wasn't it it wasn't playing the way that Ivan Reitman wanted it. So he knew, and he went to his music supervisor and said, "I need something there." Uh, and some of the biggest recording stars uh, were approached to, to to do just this little piece of the theme. Uh, and again, they were also thinking, "Well, there's the montage. Uh, maybe this theme song could then play over that." We did this uh, great day of of guerrilla shooting around New York City. That we need something to kind of keep that energy going. A theme song might work there, but really what's most important is on the title of the movie, I need something there. Now, I believe reading uh, or hearing somewhere um, that Kenny Loggins was one of those people that was approached and he passed on even trying it. Um, Unfortunately for this recording, I couldn't find where I sourced that. So uh, take that as something Troy maybe remembers or is an urban legend or or what it may be but i know that a lot of people that were were synonymous with film and especially kenny loggins knowing with uh, caddyshack and and the relationship that pre-existed there it does make sense that he was approached uh, i know that he in particular uh did not want to get pigeonholed into just being the guy that does the singles for all of the movies uh which is funny because here comes top gun and he again does danger zone and it becomes a number one hit but anyway um, so take that as a, as a grain of, of Troy's imagination or possibly something that can't be sourced at the moment. And, uh, hopefully I, I can source that at some point, but, but at any rate, so, uh, the performing duo of Pat Thrall and Glenn Hughes did decide to take on the challenge. They decided they were going to write this song that was going to play in that, that first 20, uh, that, that title card, that 22nd something. Um, so if you're not familiar with Pat Thrall and Glenn Hughes, that's Okay. Uh, Hughes was a member of the band Deep Purple. Uh, Pat Thrall is one of those session guitarists, uh, again, much like a, a Ray Parker Jr. who has recorded with Tina Turner, uh, tons of others. Um, they had formed up as a duo in 1981, having kind of abandoned the projects that they were working on uh, previously and had an album release in 1982. Uh, they had a really interesting sound. They employed a lot of guitar and synthesizers. Uh, they really had a Led Zeppelin influence, again, with Deep Purple obviously being a part of, of uh, Hughes's past. Um, so it's a pretty epic album. It's it's simply called... Uh, what, oh, what is, it's, it's called Hughes Thrall. That's the name of the album. So uh, check that out because it's it's pretty cool, especially if you're a fan of like late 70s, uh, early 80s rock. Go check that out. But, but anyway, so um, Pat Thrall, Glenn Hughes... They set out to work on on this Ghostbusters theme song. Now, for you Dan Aykroyd fans, I want to throw this in just as a little tidbit before I continue on. You might also recognize their voices uh, and their songwriting prowess, actually, funny enough, uh, to sing the chorus among Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks's sweet rhymes in this little gem here. See that stream at we're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They got the girl off right. Now that's not nice. I think she is the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But don't you know we really ought to read them their rights? Read them their rights. Read them their rights. Well, I'm here tonight to rap about your rights. Cause right now you're in trouble. Don't have to say nothing at all. Y'all got two calls and you better make them on the double. 
<laughs> Alright, so yeah, check check out check out the music video for City of Crime 2. Uh it's it's awesome. Definitely of its time. But anyway, so okay, Hughes and Thrall uh, spent a good deal of time putting together a demo for a theme song for Ghostbusters. Uh, this is something that they thought could both cover the 22nd uh, opening title and then also play as as the theme under the montage and maybe an end credit song. Um, it was very bouncy. It had this kind of new wave pop sounding uh, a drive to it again with their synthesizers uh, kind of taking inspiration from the album that they did in 1982. Very lighthearted. Um, and unfortunately, most of this this particular song still hurt is is unheard to this day. Um, and I believe uh, it, it might have been Jason. What was it, Jason? One of one of the webmasters actually reached out to Hughes and Thrall and said, "Hey, do you guys have this demo recording?" And they both said, "No, that's so long ago, man. We don't have that." But uh, but anyway, so bits and pieces of this particular song did make it into a teaser trailer and some of the marketing. Uh, leading up to the film's release that acted as the audience's first in-theater look and listen to the film. So this teaser trailer uh, came out, I believe this was at the beginning of 1984 or end of 1983, just after production had wrapped. And so none of the special effects shots were in there. Um, some of the, the things that you hear are, are very different, wildly different, because they're using different takes and things that were not used for the film. Um, but listen very carefully as I play this teaser trailer for you. Listen to the song that's playing underneath. So this is the original teaser trailer for Ghostbusters. Do you believe in ghosts? Not those cute cartoon ghosts that look like fluffy bedsheets, and not the dancing spirits you might see on a magic midsummer's night, but real ghosts. Big city ghosts. Foul, stinking, hostile troublemakers who don't have the decency to lie down when they're dead. Well, they're out there, and someone's got to stop them. It's a job for professionals. It's a job for the Ghostbusters. disaster of biblical proportion real wrath of god type stuff exactly. fire and brimstone coming down from the sky seas and rivers boiling human sacrifice dogs and cats living together mass hysteria the brave the best the only ghostbusters starring bill murray dan Aykroyd, sigourney weaver harold ramis and rick moranis ghostbusters Coming to save the world this summer. We're ready to believe you. Right? Bouncy, obviously a little different. Well, actually a much different feel than what Ray Parker Jr. ended up with. So you can tell that Hughes and Thrall really struggled with trying to figure out how to get Ghostbusters into their lyrics. This Ivan Reitman mandate that it had to be a catchy jingle for the company, for the movie. It had to act on so many different things. Um, but Ghostbusters being something that, what do you rhyme with Ghostbusters? How do you incorporate it into uh, catchy and and um, memorable song lyrics? Uh, these guys, Hughes and Thrall, thought the answer was to kind of use it as punctuation. They wanted they put it at the end of a filler with their whoa 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 Ghostbusters. They put that at the end. Um, kind of building up to it, but not having to rhyme with it. Again, it's all of the same things that we know Ray Parker Jr. had to deal with. Um, so again, 
the song was used in promotional materials, uh, that teaser trailer. Um, and, uh, I, I believe that's the only place that I've seen or heard it. Um, but ultimately that theme was abandoned. Uh, Hughes and Thrall parted ways with Ghostbusters, the production. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not uncommon. This is, this is one of those things where there are demos and there are things that are recorded for films that we never hear. Uh, obviously there are composers who do entire scores for films and they get replaced at the end with another composer who does a whole other, uh, orchestral score. Uh, it's not uncommon. Just sometimes you put it in the, the cut and it just doesn't work. So Hughes and Thrall move on, but the June 1984 release date is firm. This is not moving. The marketing campaign is in full swing. Uh, this is now, I believe, uh, leading up to the spring of 1984. So they've got to, they've really got to lock this movie so that they can start striking prints and getting them out to theaters so that it's ready for the summer. Um, so, uh, and, and there's no track. They still have these temp tracks in the, the actual film. So music supervisor Gary Lamell, who had just come to Columbia Pictures in 1983, uh, he was the music supervisor on the film and, and this is his, among his problems. I know there's a big, uh, soundtrack album that he, he really wanted to swing for the fences with his soundtrack album. And I think it's mainly because, uh, he was most well known prior to this for winning uh, an Oscar, uh, for a star is born, uh, which is very timely now, uh, being that they just remade it and it's up for an Oscar as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Barbara Streisand album for A Star Is Born was huge, and, and uh, Lamel was, was mainly responsible for that. So uh, here it is, uh, Zero Hour. He has to come up with something, anything. What is he going to do? And he starts thinking of uh, Ray Parker Jr., uh, a good friend of his, uh, somebody that he has worked with in the past. He knows the talents and the speed, most importantly, of what Ray Parker Jr. can do. He um, had just, in 1982, so about a year or two prior to this, had just released his first solo album, The Other Woman, and it had found success. He got a number two uh, spot on the Billboard charts uh, in the R&B uh, charts, um, and and just a successful guy. Um but the thing about it, you know, I say in 1982, it was his debut solo album, but Ray was not a newcomer to this business. He had written songs for Stevie Wonder, Barry White, The Carpenters, The Supremes, Aretha Franklin, Bill Weathers, so many others. Um, he was just an accomplished songwriter and often did not take a lot of credit for it. You know, all of these uh, artists uh, that we know, like Stevie Wonder or The Carpenters, uh, The Supremes, we take for granted those, those songwriters because we just imagine that it was the, the bands or the performers that were responsible for those. So, um, and then, and then beyond that radio had several hits on their own. They had Jack and Jill and a woman needs love. Uh, so Ray Parker Jr. already had this very lengthy CV going into Ghostbusters. Um, and you know, he, he was advantageous for somebody like Gary Lamell because he's a songwriter. He can do something very quickly, but then he's also a performer. He was, uh, he sat in with all of these bands. He sat in with Stevie wonder on uh, superstition. He sat in with all of these um, amazing artists as their guitarists and, and did the session recordings too. So um, it, it was kind of like stopping at a one-stop shop really for Gary Lamell. He could go to Ray Parker jr. Say, Hey, here's the challenge. Are you up for it? And I also need you to do a demo. Um, but 
so here's what I'm going to do. So Ray, again, I'm, his status among musicians was already legendary in 1983. And you have to go check out the documentary Hired Gun, which is about um, all of the, the session musicians and all of these people that are just incredible musicians, just incredible performers. Um, and that's actually what I'm going to play the next clip here from because it details a lot of that life in general, and then just happens to bring up uh, some of these breakthrough stars like Ray Parker Jr. Um, so anyway, so within that documentary, Hired Gun, uh, Ray tells this wonderful story about how and when Gary Lamel approached him about the film. Only a few people get phenomena, and only a couple people get hits. And it's more important to have a classic song than it is to have a number one song. First of all, I never, ever could possibly imagine that I could write a song that would become part of worldwide folklore. It's not even American folklore. While I was in California, I'll never forget, I had dinner at Spago's, and across the street was this black billboard. And every week or so many days, they put different things around. So now they got the circle going up. And I'm like, I wonder what that is. You know? Well, guess what? The phone rings. Here's Gary LaMail from Columbia Pictures, and he's saying, Ray, there's a movie coming out. He says, have you seen these black posters where we got the circle? <laughs> this is about time to get the ghost in there. The movie's coming out, okay? So this is gonna happen fast. And he says, we've now spent a year, year and a half calling everybody. We've hired everybody, we've spent millions of dollars, but the director is insistent upon the word Ghostbusters must be in the song. I told Gary, I said, well, that's nice, but I'm going back to Detroit. I'm not doing this. I'm like sort of, not retired, but sort of retired. You mean if you don't like it, I get to keep your fee? He says, yeah, if we hate it and you turn into music, you get to keep the 50 grand. Stayed up two or three days, wrote the song, gave it to him. And the director, Ivan Reitman, called me at 3.30 in the morning. He loved it. Two weeks into this deal, Clive Davis said, we, we sold four million records overseas just on imports. And at the Meetem Festival, they were already presenting me with a 10 million selling album award. To this day, people ask me, are you tired of hearing people say, who are you gonna call? Well, no. It's like, am I tired of holding the best lava tickle or the best thing that ever happened? No. Who you gonna call? So obviously we know the result. Uh, Ray uh, did end up writing a song with a very catchy hook. Uh, he found a, a good cheat to rely on a very cloud, uh, cloud crowd pleasing chant to yell Ghostbusters. So it didn't, he didn't have to work it into the lyrics. He could have it be a call and response thing. It also encourages the audience to start uh, engaging in it. Um, obviously you watch the film and you see a lot of the crowds cheering and chanting Ghostbusters. It made a whole lot of sense to have this be sort of like a crowd participation thing. Um, so Ray writes this wonderful demo. We won't talk about the similarities to Huey Lewis's I Want a New Drug, which I'm sure if you're tuning in and you're familiar with the situation, there was a lawsuit. Uh, Huey Lewis was concerned that, uh, that this particular, uh, title track to Ghostbusters maybe was a little too familiar for him. Um, and, uh, and, and that was settled out of court. I, I would go suggest that you listen to, um, David W. Collins's soundtrack show. Uh, he did two episodes on Ghostbusters and the second one is where he really talked about all of the, the pop sound, uh, I'm sorry, pop songs that were on the soundtrack. Uh, and he does this awesome analyzation of, I want a new drug and Ghostbusters. And he kind of provides his, his analysis and his thoughts on a musical level. It's very awesome. I don't even want to try to replicate it because he's David W. Collins and I, I, I bow to him. He is wonderful. So go check out the soundtrack show where that happens. But, but anyway, so as Ray mentioned in the previous interview, 
Uh, he did all of this in two very long, sleepless days. Two days the Ghostbusters theme song was written in. Uh, and, and this demo tape that he had sent over to the filmmakers goes over so well. It, uh, Ivan loves it. Uh, the music supervisor, Gary Lamell, loves it. Um, there was also concern from Arista Records at the time uh, that they didn't want uh, Ray Parker Jr., who was trying to make a, a living as... Uh, you know, trying to get into the, the Barry White, uh, Luther Vandross, like he, he, he was writing these really sexy songs that inspired love and, and you don't want your star singer, uh, talking about ghosts and doing jingles for a movie. So there was a little bit of, of apprehension on, on Arista's part to let Ray Parker Jr. not only do that in the first place, but also then to have it be on this big, uh, you know, tentpole release film that was going to get so much visibility. And, and they, they weren't sure what it was going to do for both their records and for, for, uh, Ray, but, uh, obviously Arista records sold a lot of Ghostbusters, uh, soundtracks. So I think, think they were okay. But anyway, so, uh, one over the execs and the filmmakers, and it went from something that would not only be heard in the title, uh, but also in the montage and then of course ends the film. So uh, this, this particular track, even though it was such a, a question mark for them really became the, the bookends and really kind of the linchpin for the movie. Everything kind of relied upon this theme uh, to make it happen. Because if you, if you listen to that, that Hughes thrall song, it's a wonderful song. It's very fun. I really want to hear the whole thing from start to finish. Um, but it, it doesn't have that drive. It doesn't have that, that punch that you need, uh, to really kick the movie off uh, into a, another gear and then just keep it going and, and picture that, that particular, uh, theme being played under the montage. Um, it would have played completely differently. It was a totally different type of feel. So Ray writes this demo they go and they do a proper recording of it with a, uh, not, not a whole lot of time, but he did have some time. Um, and they actually did several recordings where there have been many releases. There were different dubs, different mixes. Um, uh, the, the GB wiki is a really good resource to, to see what all of the official uh, releases and recordings actually were. Um, but the movie obviously found tremendous success. And as a result, so did Ray. And the song, I mean, uh, he obviously had success. And again, we talked about his long CV in the past, uh, but with this song, he had a genuine number one hit on the billboard charts for three solid weeks. Uh, again, the other woman, uh, topped the top 10, but only on the R and B track or on the R and B uh, charts. Um, and it was just, it, th this was sort of really what rocket propelled Ray. Now, what's interesting is that maybe some of the apprehension on the Arista records, uh, executives part, um, may have been true because Ray never really returned, uh, to that sort of like the other woman and Jack and Jill and, and those kind of ballads. Um, he never really had another, uh, another big hit like that after this, but, um, but it, it, it certainly did give him, uh, some, some massive, massive success and, uh, and not only financial and, and selling, uh, gold and platinum records, uh, but also he was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, he lost to his old friend Stevie Wonder, funny enough, or I just called to say I love you, uh, which is in the Gene Wilder film, The Woman in Red. It's such a good film, too. But uh, but anyway, so yeah, so uh, he's nominated for an Oscar um, and and he's really in the limelight. And people are are think of it like when Huey Lewis in the news, speaking of Huey Lewis, uh, did the power of love for Back to the Future. And it became such a massive hit. And even in the music video, Huey Lewis says Hollywood came calling like it's a big deal when you had, especially in the 1980s and into the, the early 90s, 
when you had the title track on a movie and you were uh, you were an aspiring pop star, you were an aspiring musician that wanted to find some some level of notoriety, th- that was the measure of it. If you got to do that song and it was a success, uh, you, you did you did okay, you did great. Um, so amid the hype of the film success and the award nomination, there's a really great interview that Ray did on Good Morning America with the host at the time, Joan London. Uh, this was from 1984. And we're going to end on this clip because uh, it's it's so wonderful because he's caught up in the moment and you really you can you can hear the stars in Ray Parker Jr.'s eyes. So here's Ray on the Joan London interview with Good Morning America. Just try to sit still during that one. The man singing and strutting in between the ghosts is Ray Parker Jr. Ray also wrote and arranged the song, and it is the latest in a long hit of string of hits for him. And he's with us this morning. And good morning. Oh, good morning. But your string of hits is really love songs and variations on the theme. What did you think about it when they came to you and said, "We want you to write a song <laughs> about Ghostbusters"? Yeah. Well, people don't know me very well, but I like the escape from reality type movies. You know, I like uh, Star Wars. When I, so when I first saw Ghostbusters, it was great to me. And I had looked at a lot of films, and I wasn't really that interested in a lot of them that I saw. But I saw Ghostbusters, and I got inspired. And uh, the time schedule was real. Yeah. <laughs> real I don't know time. if everybody realized. I mean, is it true that you really did this? You wrote it and recorded it within, what, about 48 hours yeah. or something? Yeah, two, two and a half days. That's uh, rather unusual, is it yeah, not? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like, I met Ivan Reitman, and they said, well, we need this song kind of fast. <clears throat> and I figured, well, I guess they need 30 days from now. <laughs> no. He says, well, we, we need this song, like, in a few days. I said, a few days you want the song? Yeah, and also we want the title Ghostbusters to be in the song. That was even more difficult than getting it in just a few days. Because, you know, you start to think, oh, I love Ghostbusters. You know, you got to figure out a way to say it. It's a hard title to say in a song, you know. Yeah. Did you have any idea that it was going to be such a smash hit? Uh, I had no idea. I didn't even have any idea that it was going to be in a movie. I was so tired by the time I finished it that I just sent the tape off by messenger and I went to bed. <laughs> I didn't even know if they liked it or not. Someone called me in the middle of the night and said, you're in, you know. It seems though that, I mean, all ages love this song. I mean, my four-year-old runs around singing Ghostbusters all the time. And yeah. you said, what, you go into stores and what, two-year-olds yeah, the little kids that can barely speak, they say, oh, mommy, mommy, Ghostbusters, mommy, mommy. <laughs> and the two lines are who you're going to call. That's and it. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. That's right. Yeah. In the, the video, now, which, which even the video you did in what, about four or five days? Three days. Yeah. Three days? Yeah. There's like a, a who's who list of comedians and actors <laughs> with Terry Garr, Peter yeah. Falk, uh, John Candy, Chevy Chase, Chevy Chase. The list goes on and on and on. How did how did you manage that? Who do you know to get along? I didn't know anybody. It was all the Ivan Reitman, you know. Ivan Reitman. Now that's he directed it, right? He's the director and the producer. He's the guy that's going to put me in my next big film, Ghostbusters 2. Aha. Now, okay, okay. Now, do you want to do a movie? You want to be a movie star? Oh yes, yes. Real bad. Real bad. What kind? Smiling face. What kind of a movie star would you like to be? Either a love romantic type movie or another escape from reality type movie. In fact, I'm working on a little thing now called Love Song. Uh, the producers that produced the Prince movie are going to do it. So, so you either want to be you either want to be a romantic lead or a comedian. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Well, escape from reality type movie, spaceships or 
ghosts in there. Well, I believe in keeping your options yeah. open. Good luck to you. Well, thank you. Nice seeing you. Great, great song. Thank you. Uh, right now, it's uh, 43 after Irma Bomb. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go, 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 go stoppers. stoppers! I'm sorry, we'll do it again. We want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail on our calling line at 470-242-4742. That's 4702-GBHQIC. We also have a Facebook page. And Twitter accounts. Friends is dead. No kidding. Just give me the address. Search Facebook for... Ghostbusters! Interdimensional Crossrip. On Twitter, look for Troy at Ghostbusters HQ and Chris at Proton Charger. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes. Be sure to recommend us to your friends. That makes good sense. Don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Once again, our call-in line is 4702-GBHQIC. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. Well, so there it was, everybody. Uh, that was our, our third installment of these Tobin's Audio Guide uh, tracks. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we will be back next week with a normal uh, episode. This uh, th- this was actually an episode that we were preparing for uh, something else that was happening uh, in about a month or two. <laughs> and uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, I had to expedite it a little bit. So um yeah we'll be back uh chris and i will be together we'll be talking about all the latest news uh production designer has been hired on ghostbusters 2020 uh there's some great playmobile no- uh news coming out of the toy fair in new york city um and just so much more that we'll be talking about on next monday's episode so as always please join us uh monday mornings every monday morning we do our best and and strive for consistency uh, that you will always have an episode up there come hell or high water. And uh, that's kind of why this particular one got dropped into the, to the fray pretty quickly. But uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly enjoyed making it. And this is one of those that I, I was really excited to do. So um, all of the archival clips are wonderful. And uh, please, please go watch Hired Gun, the documentary, because it is, is so good. Uh, also, I do need to mention that Ray Parker Jr. Uh, crowdfunded a documentary about himself uh, talking about his career talking about ghostbusters the phenomenon um and as i understand that is still in production uh, right now but uh, go go check out there was a kickstarter uh, for that particular uh project and there was a great uh trailer where where ray parker jr talks about what he wants to do so um our thanks to ray parker jr you're not listening but uh what would we do without your theme song uh, every halloween it, it it gets so much radio play it gets so much party play it's it's just it really is a gem and i never obviously never grow tired of hearing it uh, 35 years later and something fun in the ghostbusters community happens like when the movie was announced uh i'm i'm the goofy kid that's uh driving down the 405 here in los angeles with ray parker jr's theme song just blasting at top volume and everybody's looking at me like what what is that guy doing weirdo but it's okay I'm not ashamed. I'm totally fine with it. I, I I take it in stride because I'm having a good time and I love the song. So uh, hopefully you guys all do too. Hopefully you don't grow tired of it because it's it's an awesome song. And it, it has to be in the new movie. It's going to be in the new movie. That's a no-brainer. Uh, all right. But I'm going to sign this one off. Uh, Chris isn't here to do final thoughts. So my final thought is uh, be kind to one another, please. Everybody just be nice to each other. It, it, it would be wonderful if we could all just be nice. It would make the world a better place. <laughs> but on that note, we'll see you all on the other side. Who you gonna call? 
Thanks for joining the Ghostbusters Interdimensional Crossrip. Visit us at ProtonCharging.com, GhostbustersHQ.net, and StillPlayingWithToys.net. That used to be one of my two favorite shows. Anything you're doing is bad. I just want to let you know that. We'd like to get a sample of your brain tissue. Oh. Next week, though, Careless Pets. We're so